Uh, it's great to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, um, if this is your first Sunday or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks but we haven't had an opportunity to, to greet one another, I would love to meet you sometime after the service to just be able to formally greet you and welcome you because uh, we are glad that you are here. We're glad that you're with us as we uh, worship our God and as we sing praise to him. Well, this morning, uh, we are going to pick up in our uh, series on the life of Peter. So if you've been with us during the spring, that's what we're doing. We're looking at various episodes in the gospel accounts uh, that focus on the life of Peter and Peter's interaction with Jesus as a way of us considering what it looks like to follow Christ. How are we to be disciples of, of our Lord? And, and so we took a little break for the last couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated uh, the ordination of our assistant pastor, Andrew. Uh, last week, we had a guest preacher, Andy Wood. And this week, we're going to return to the life of Peter for this week and next week uh, before we enter into the Psalms for the summer. And so as we're thinking about the life of Peter and, and where we're going to go from here, uh, we, we need to turn to the book of Acts. Um, and specifically this morning, Acts 4. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have it on your device, there are Bibles in the uh, chairs in front of you. You are welcome to grab one of those and follow along. But we're going to look at Acts 4. And, and I will have to tell you that uh, there are many, many places in the book of Acts that we could turn to look at the life of Peter. Right? I mean, we could look at Acts chapter 2, Peter's great Pentecost sermon. We could look at some of the episodes where Peter is uh, imprisoned, where he's thrown in jail. There are many places we could look. But, but I chose this week to look at Acts 4 and next week to look at Acts 10 because these two passages demonstrate for us the change that has taken place in Peter's life. They reveal to us the transformation that has occurred. And so we're going to look at Acts 4 this morning. And as we look at it, we need to get a little, little bit of context, right? Because we've been in the Gospels, so we need to understand where we are in the story of redemption. So Jesus has died, he's risen, he's ascended into heaven. Um, in Acts chapter 2, he sent his Holy Spirit upon his people, and they went out proclaiming the Gospel, declaring the good news that the Christ had come, that he had died and risen. And when Peter proclaimed this, when he preached it, many people came to faith. Many people believed, and, and a great occurrence, a, a great disturbance actually took place in Jerusalem because all these people were believing in this Christ who had come. That was Acts chapter 2, but then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking up to the temple, and as they're walking, there's a man who's been crippled, a lame man, for 40 years. He's sitting on the temple steps, and he's begging for money. He's looking for people to give him gold or silver. And Peter says to him, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. This man who had been lame for 40 years, he rises up and he walks. This great miracle occurs, this great healing. And so this event causes a great commotion because people had been seeing this man sitting out by the temple, and now he was walking. Well, this commotion, it, it means that Peter and John have to go and stand before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the supreme court of the Jewish people, right? There's great commotion amongst the people, so they're going to question him. They're going to ask them about what has occurred. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. 
Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. And so follow along, beginning in verse 5 of Acts chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, But by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of all the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God, our Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for the work that you have done throughout redemptive history. We thank you for the work that you have done in our midst. And we pray that that work would be evident this morning, that you would help us so that my words would honor you, that you would help us so that our minds would be attentive to your word, so that in all our ways we would give you glory. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think that um, I'm very much like many of you in that uh, I have a great appreciation for those home improvement shows on HGTV. Um, you know, I, I've, I've become a uh, I became uh, acquainted with uh, Chip and Joe and, and those other shows that, uh, that show uh, these dilapidated homes that, that are falling apart, that are dark and dank and have weeds growing up and raccoons living in attics and all these sorts of things and how they can be transformed into something beautiful. Right? I'm not the only one. I know y'all are watching Hometown and y'all are grieving that Chip and Joe we have to watch on reruns because... Uh, because they're no longer on air. And, and I know that, that we love these sorts of shows, right? 
I mean, it's amazing to watch what they're able to do, that they can remove a wall and they can put in islands and they can, you know, plaster walls with shiplap and everything looks beautiful, right? I mean, uh, we, we love these sorts of shows. And as I was thinking about them, I, I realized that actually what I like about them isn't watching them put shiplap up or tearing out walls or demo day. It's not those sorts of things. Actually, my favorite part of these shows is the before and the after, right? You have to wait till the very end but the before and the after, they show the before where the raccoons were nesting in the corner and how now it's this beautiful space where they're sipping tea in the morning, right? Or, or where there used to be a wall and now there is no wall and miraculously the house isn't caving in, right? These before and after pictures that show this incredible transformation that has occurred. I love seeing them. I love seeing them, right? Because these before and afters, they're, they're actually very powerful. They show us what, what can occur, that, that the change that can take place in, in a place, in a home. But before and after ha are, are powerful, not just because what can occur in a structure, but because what can happen in our lives, right? Um, if, if you're on social media, which like 98% of y'all are, because <laughs> I see you on social media, um, uh, you've seen that we are putting up before and after pictures of our lives, Right? Someone goes on a new diet, they're starting a new exercise regimen, what do they do before and after, right? They're up there, they're, they're always there. In fact, I have a friend of mine, I have a friend of mine who a number of years ago, uh, he, was, uh, he was eating way too much, and he was exercising way too little, and he was starting to have a lot of health problems because of his weight. And he told me I could talk about this. I mean, he's plastered it all over Facebook, so, so it's perfectly fine. But, um, but, uh, but my friend decided one day he was going to make a change. And so he became very, very regimented and very, very rigid about the food that he was taking in and with the exercise that he was going to engage in day after day after day. And it was amazing to watch the transformation that took place. I saw him every week, and it was awesome to see my friend's clothes starting to get a little bit baggier every week, and his face starting to get a little bit thinner, and his body starting to get a little bit leaner. It was incredible to watch the transformation that took place, that over a year he lost 140 pounds. That's a lot of weight, <laughs> right? 140 pounds in one year. But what was amazing wasn't just watching the transformation occurring week after week, day after day, but it's now to go back and look. Because every once in a while, he'll put pictures like memories of maybe when he was first married, his wedding day, or a memory of, of a child's birthday or the, the purchase of a home. And he's showing these pictures before he got serious about his way. And then we see pictures of him now and the transformation we, you don't have to look very hard to notice it. It's evident to everyone the change that has taken place, the before and the after. You just have to give him a little glance and you can see the incredible change, the incredible transformation that has taken place in his life. And that kind of transformation is what's happened to Peter. In our passage, we see Peter in a very different way than we saw him last. You remember the last time we, we saw Peter? He was being renewed by Jesus. He was being restored, right? Jesus was saying to him, do you love me? And he said, of course, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. But do you remember why he needed to be renewed? Why he needed to be restored? Because he had denied Christ, 
right? Peter was full of boldness, right? He was full of courage. He was full of brashness. He, I will never turn from you, God. I will, I will go to my very death to follow you, Jesus. But then what happened? His courage actually was shown to be a man full of cowardness, right? I mean, he, he wasn't courageous. He was cowardly. A little girl asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? A little girl. And he's like, no, no, no. You got me wrong. He had fallen apart. He had crumbled. But now? Now he's standing before the Jewish Supreme Court. He's standing before men. It's not little girls anymore asking by what name you have done this. But now it is these men of power and authority. He stands before them. And what we're told in verse 13 is that the leaders perceived his boldness. They saw his boldness. Now, that word boldness, it has the connotation of courage. They saw his courage. That when he spoke, that when he stood before them, what they saw was not a cowardly man crumbling, but a courageous man standing boldly in front of them. There's a great transformation that has occurred in Peter's life. A great transformation has occurred, and what this transformation looks like is courage. That's what we see in Peter's life, but, but how do they see it? How, does, how do they perceive this courage? Well, what we see is that in his cowardliness of denying Christ, that that is now replaced with a courage that promotes the name of Christ. That that's what courage looks like. It, it doesn't cower in the face of opposition, but instead it promotes the name of Christ. That phrase, the name, it's littered throughout our passage. Chapter 3 and 4, it's, it's all over the place. Chapter 3, that's how it began. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then we have the uproar and the council says in verse 7 of our chapter, by what name did you do this? By what name? What power, what authority do you have to do this act? And what does Peter say in verse 10? Well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter's saying it's not by my own power, by my own authority that this has taken place, but it is by the name of Christ by his power, by his authority that this man has been made well. But Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't just promote the name of Christ in this healing. He goes beyond because Jesus' name is in some sort of incantation that brings about physical well-being. It's something more than that. Look, in verse 12, he says, of this name, there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you hear what Peter said? There is salvation in no one else. Jewish Sanhedrin, you want salvation? People of God, Israel, you want salvation? The, the people of Jerusalem who were there, you want salvation? There is salvation in no one else but Christ. Now, I, I know many of you, and for some of you, most of you, this probably isn't really all that 
new, right? This, this doesn't bristle against us. We, we don't have a problem with this idea. But, but there may be some of you here this morning who, when you hear salvation in no one else, you start to think, man, that sounds awfully restrictive. It sounds very narrow. It sounds sounds a little too limiting, a little too exclusive. And it sounds that way because it is. Right? I mean, I know that we live in a day where, where we talk about ascending to God, having fellowship with God, and, and, you know, God is on the mountaintop, and it doesn't matter what road you take to get up. Right? It doesn't matter what path. Take the fire lane. Take the hard, hard path. Go, go by the way of Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith or your own good works. Or I'm going to set off on my own path. I'm going to take my own track. I'm going to start a new way up. It doesn't matter what path you take as long as you get to the top, right? I mean, we, we know that that is, that is the air that our culture breathes. And it is in complete contrast to the teaching of Peter. It is in complete opposition to what Peter declares on this day. And it is in complete contrast to the teaching of Scripture and of Jesus' teaching himself. I mean, in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one way to fellowship with the Father. There's only one name by which we are saved. And it's not Muhammad, and it's not Buddha, and it's not Penny, and it's not y'all. It's Jesus. He is the only name by which we are saved. He is the only one who brings the salvation that we are longing for. He's the one who transforms us. And so we have to ask ourselves, right, right now, in this moment, you need to ask yourself, what do I believe about this name? What do I believe about this name? What do I believe about this person that Peter was declaring on that day? For he is the one who transforms. He is the one who changes us. He is the one who makes us those who were dead and makes us now alive. And it is only through the name of Christ. That's what Peter does. You see the transformation that takes place in his life. Remember, he was once cowering. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus, but now he's declaring that there is salvation in no one else. There's a transformation. There's courage. But the courage on display here is not only in Peter's promoting Christ's name, where he once denied it, but it's also resisting compromise, where he had also once given in. You see, he resists compromise. Look, the council who's standing, you know, Peter and John are standing before, they, they're not sure what to do with these guys. They actually thought they were done with Jesus, didn't they? <laughs> and now they're saying it's by the name of Christ that this man has been saved. They're hearing that name again. And so they're not sure what they're to do. They can't pretend that the healing didn't happen, right? Because everyone had seen it. And so what do they say? Well, they confer amongst themselves. They bring Peter and John back. And in verse 18, we're told that they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So what the council did was they said, okay, look, we know the man was healed. We know everybody saw it. We get it. We understand. And, and we're not asking you to deny it. Just don't say that name anymore. Like, don't talk about Jesus anymore. 
can't y'all talk about something else? Maybe something not so divisive? You know, like, like just claim it for yourself. That's basically what they're saying, right? But what does Peter do? Well, I want you to think about Peter and John in this situation. Think about how easy it would have been for them to succumb to that request. I mean, who are they standing in front of? Honest and Caiaphas. Do you all remember who Honest and Caiaphas are? We've seen them before. They showed up a, f- a few weeks ago. They showed up a few weeks ago in another episode because Honest and Caiaphas are the men to whom Jesus was standing in front of after he was arrested. These are the men that actually questioned Jesus, who said that Jesus is a blasphemer, who then called for Jesus to be struck and to be punished and to be beaten, who called for Jesus' death. These are men who have authority and power within their community, and these are the men that Peter and John are now standing in front of. And so it would have been very easy for them to waver, wouldn't it? To give in. I mean, in fact, they threatened John and, <clears throat> excuse me, John and Peter in verse 21. And we don't know what this threat looked like. Maybe they threatened them and said, well, if you say this name anymore, you're going in jail. We're going to throw you in prison. Because that's what happened in chapter 5. The apostles were all imprisoned. And later in the book of Acts, James and Peter, they're thrown in jail. Maybe that's what they threatened them with. Imprisonment. Or maybe they threatened them with physical harm because that's what they did to Christ. They are the ones who struck him and beat him. We don't know what they threatened them with. But what we do know is that it would have been very, very easy for Peter and John to accommodate to the wishes of the authority. That's not what they did. Look at verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Do you hear what they're saying? They're acknowledging the authority that's before them. They're speaking to them in an honorable way. But what they're declaring is that they will not submit to the authority above in front of them because there is a greater authority even over that authority that day. That they are more concerned with obeying the authority of God than they are the authority of man. And friends, that takes courage. That takes courage because we all know how hard it is to hold to the truth and to resist pressure, whether formal or informal pressure. We know how hard that is because it often comes with a cost. It may not be the cost of imprisonment. It may not be the cost of a physical threat upon us. But it could be the cost of what people think of us. Right? I mean, what might they think if they know that I'm one of those Jesus people? (laughs) I mean, we all have those friendships, those relationships, right? That they know that I go to church, they know that I kind of, you know, do this religious thing, but if they really knew... Man, they'd think I'm a weirdo, right? You really believe those sorts of things? I mean, wasn't that like so medieval? (laughs) Like, haven't we progressed beyond that? Haven't we evolved into a better way of thinking? Really, you're, you're, you're really still taking in the opiate of the masses, right? We have those friendships, don't we? And so, so it's easy for us to withhold, It's easy for us to be quiet because what if they really will think I'm crazy? 
right? We know this because we, we live in a time, right, where the, the biblical claims about the world and, and about God and about humanity, right, they're, they're oftentimes ignored and marginalized and even mocked. And so what do we do? It's easy in the face of, of cost to acquiesce. You know, it was Francis Schaeffer who said that in an age of relativity, the practice of truth, when it is costly, is the only way to cause the world to take seriously our protestations concerning the truth. You hear what he's saying? That by taking the cost upon ourselves for the sake of what is good, for the sake of what is true, for the sake of what is beautiful, it actually points to the truthfulness of what we believe. The cost of being ignored or misunderstood, you see, it doesn't cause us to retreat into Christian enclaves or to remove ourselves from the world or to remain silent, but instead it should cause us to stand with courage about the truth that Christ has died and he has risen so that sinners like me, like me, and like you may have salvation, may have fellowship with God, I mean, that message that has transformed our lives, is it not worth the cost? Of course it is. That's what courage looks like. It means resisting compromise. It means promoting the name of Christ. But where does this kind of courage come from? I mean, where do we get it? That's what we should be asking. This transformation that occurred in Peter's life, in John's life, how, how does this transformation occur in our lives? I want you to notice something. When Peter and John are speaking to the leaders, when the boldness and the, the courage of Peter and John is perceived by them, that's what we're told in verse 13, we're told that the leaders were astonished. And why? Because these were common men. They were uneducated men. And yet, in front of the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, they are full of courage and boldness. And they're not faltering and they're not failing. They're astonished. But also, we're told, at the end of verse 13, that the Jewish leaders recognized they had been with Jesus. Isn't that an amazing statement? That, that the transformation that occurred in their lives was so radical was so other than themselves that the Jewish leaders knew it had to have been because of Christ. Basically, we've seen this before. We've seen this before, and we've only ever seen it before in one man, and so clearly these men have been with that one man. The way that they were living before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the way that they were living before the people, it pointed to Christ. Their courage wasn't about themselves. You know, I think that sometimes we make the mistake in our day. We make the mistake of thinking that someone is courageous when in reality they're just really harsh. That we think that they're being courageous, but really they're just kind of critical. They're kind of punks. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? We, we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that someone is bold when in reality they're brash. And they're just full of themselves. But that's not real courage. That's not real boldness. You see, courage and boldness from a Christian perspective doesn't point to ourselves. It, it actually should demonstrate a life lived with Christ. It should point others to not ourselves, but to Christ. 
because that courage comes from him. I mean, that's what we're told in verse 8, that when Peter and John are about to be questioned by these men, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the courage that they demonstrate doesn't come from themselves. They didn't just grit their teeth or resolve in that moment, I'm going to be bold, right? I mean, we, don't, we know that doesn't work, right? I mean, you've tried that, haven't you? I'm going to hold firm to what is true no matter what. And then we get really quiet, <laughs> right? Because resolve, like Kierkegaard said, is like skipping stones. The stone sinks, right? Our resolve will fail. No matter how much we want to change, our wanting will be found wanting. Now, what we need, this kind of courage, it must come from outside of ourselves. Kids, I want you to think about like this. So kids, think about like Captain America. Okay, you all know Captain America. Captain America wasn't always Captain America. Right, Captain America, kids, you know, he was weak and he was scrawny, and he was pushed around, and he wanted to be a defender of truth and a promoter of goodness, but, but he was pushed around by all the other bigger kids because he was weak and scrawny, right? He, was, he wasn't Captain America. He was Steve Rogers. <laughs> I mean, ugh, Steve Rogers. I mean, even the name, right? It's, ugh, right? He wasn't the captain, right? For him to become the great promoter of justice, the great defender of truth, the rescuer of the weak, change had to take place. A change that wasn't because he hit the gym real hard, right? Or he took his protein shakes. It was a change that took place from outside of him. It had to infuse him. It had to be something that was created outside of him that was put inside of him for him to become Captain America. And kids, that's like us. We're not strong enough to be bold. We don't have enough resolve to be courageous in of ourselves. The transformation that took place in Peter's life and the transformation that needs to take place in our life doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It comes from God. And the disciples knew this. After our passage in the rest of chapter 4, I'd encourage you to read it maybe later today or this week. After our passages, they've been released. The disciples, they go and they report to all their friends what has happened. And all the people, they prayed together to God with one voice. And they prayed this, Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's that same word. Grant us the ability to continue to have courage. Grant us the ability to continue to proclaim your name with boldness, to resist compromise with courage. You see, they knew that the courage that they had in that moment and the courage that they would need for the next day and the next day and the day after that, it only came through Christ. It only comes by the hand of God and the power of his spirit. He is the one who transforms us. He is the one who changes us. I mean, when you think about Peter, I mean, the before and the after, I mean, it is radical, the transformation that has occurred, isn't it? It is amazing that this man who was once giving in to just the questioning of a little girl now stands with courage before these men of great authority and power. 
These before and after pictures, they truly are amazing testimonies of change, of a transformation that has taken place. And the truth is, friends, the truth is, is that, that the greatest transformation that occurs in our lives is the one done by God's Spirit, is the one that we cannot conjure up ourselves. And so if you are trusting in the God who saves this morning, then, then you have been changed. You've been changed from death to life. You've been transformed from sinner into saint. You've been changed by the God who emboldens us to live as his people and who gives us courage today and tomorrow and all our days to proclaim that it is by his name and his name alone that salvation has come. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and we do praise you that you have transformed us that you have changed us, that there is nothing in of ourselves that would cause us to now be bold and courageous, to proclaim your name, the name that is above every name. We thank you that by your spirit you have changed us into new people, that the old is gone, the new has come, that sinner is now saint. We praise you and worship you and ask that today that you would grant us by your spirit, the courage to continue to promote the name of Christ, to resist the calls to acquiesce, and to courageously stand before others declaring you and you alone bring salvation. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.